We turn in the word of the Lord once more to 1 Peter chapter 3. We look here at the first six verses. And this is a word of God, the word of God, and a particular word directed and addressed to Christian wives. In its first application, it is a word directed to Christian wives whose husbands are not believers. But like concentric circles, there are various aspects and layers to this application. It's a word of the Lord for Christian wives, not just for uh, Christian wives with unbelieving husbands, but Christian wives with believing husbands as well. And it's a word not just for wives, but for all women. And in fact, it's a word at one level, even for spouses, for husbands whose spouses, whose wives do not serve the Lord. I trust that we'll make the the various slight and obvious adjustments as we go through the text. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 and following. Here is the word of the Lord. Likewise, wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything, that is frightening. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, as you have illumined our minds and our hearts in times past. Father, we pray that you would do so once more today, here and now. Spirit of God, you have breathed out this word and caused it to be written and preserved without error for millennia. We ask you, Holy Spirit, that now you would cause this word to be, Father, understood by us, to be Uh, loved by us and to be obeyed by us. Father, we need your help. And so help us, dear God, and cause the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart to be pleasing in your sight. O God, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. How is a Christian woman who is married to an unbelieving husband to live before God and to live before their husbands? That's the immediate question we have here uh, by Peter the Apostle. It's part of a more general question that we've been looking at. How do Christians submit to unbelieving authorities in this fallen world? How is it that as Christians, starting in verse 13, we can be subject for the Lord's sake to human institutions like civil government, 
that aren't Christian? How can we be subject in verse 18 to workplaces and companies that are not Christian? And now we come to the domestic sphere, to wives who have unbelieving husbands. And of course, that is part of an even bigger theme, which is something we've been exploring the last few weeks and months, which is to say that we serve God not by exempting ourselves from those human institutions, from those creational norms and institutions that God has established, but rather we serve God in and through those institutions, right? Uh, We can't say, well, I'm saved, I'm a Christian, right? I don't need government, right? I don't need to be an excellent worker in my company. Uh, I don't need to stay married to my unbelieving spouse. No, we serve God by remaining faithful to God in and through those institutions. This is how, in many ways, we fulfill our calling in the Christian life, beginning all the way in chapter 2, verse 11. This is how we abstain from the passions of the flesh. This is how, in verse 12, we keep our conduct among Gentiles honorable. This is how we do good to others. This is how remaining faithful to God in these creational institutions of civil government, of work, of marriage, how we, in verse 15, silence the slander and accusation of evildoers. In verse 16, how we serve God as his servants. Verse 19 and 20, how we manifest the grace of God at work in us. And now in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, how we win our spouses to Christ and the Christian faith. So we come back to the original, the immediate question. How is it that Christian wives who are married to unbelieving spouses, unbelieving husbands, how are they to live? What is God's will for your life, dear sisters? There are three things to note from our text here. And the first is that God calls you to submit. God calls you to submit to your husband. And that's clear as day in verse 1. Likewise, wives, be submissive to your own husbands. you may not, and you cannot, you have no warrant to leave or abandon your unbelieving husband simply because he's an unbeliever. You cannot say, well, the Christian faith has liberated me, right? I'm free. I'm free from all earthly conjugal obligations of marriage. No, you are not exempt. You may not leave your unbelieving husband just simply because he's an unbeliever, because he doesn't believe in Christ or because you have come to faith and perhaps maturity in Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 to see this point made more explicitly. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, this is a chapter having to deal with, uh, having to do with various aspects of marriage and singleness. A lot here, we're not going to look at any of that except a few verses that I trust don't need a lot of explanation contextually. They're readily accessible. Verse 12 and 13 of 1 Corinthians 7. This is what Paul says. He says, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. It is God's word, right? So it's not something that the Lord gave in his earthly ministry. It's what Paul is saying here. And yet it is God's word. 
<clears throat> that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And then he flips it and puts the shoe on the other foot. Verse 13, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Verse 14, which we've looked at in previous weeks in terms of covenant baptism. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. And then notice what it says in verse 16, uh, verse 15 and 16. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Notice verse 16. Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? And that is precisely the point of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. And then Paul puts the shoe on the other foot and says, Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? You cannot leave your spouse nilly-willy. Willy-nilly, just because they are an unbeliever. No, God says, remain faithful to your spouse. Remain faithful in the bond of marriage. Because as hard as it may be, there is a supernatural, spiritual depth and dimension here that we might not be able to see which is that God is at work in ways that you, you can't tell, you can't see, you can't palpably articulate. God is at work, and we'll get to that momentarily. Dear sister, you are called by God to submit to your husband, even your unbelieving husband. Egalitarianism has rotted our brains in our day, unfortunately, so that uh, so it's, it's the majority opinion in society and it's even in the church in many respects that maleness and femaleness do not exist, right? And if they do, right, they are of no consequence. You know, they're, they're interchangeable. There's no authority structure. There's no head of the household in the man. There's no submission of wife necessary to husband. Everything is fluid. Everything is open to redefinition to be recast in our day. And yet God teaches otherwise. God teaches that there is a divine design so that even if your husband is an unbeliever, he's still the head of your household. And we may not overturn God's order and expect to enjoy God's blessing in our lives. We had a lecture a few weeks ago on the anti-revolutionary nature of Christianity, and that is what the Christian faith is. It's completely anti-revolutionary. It's anti-demonic. It's anti-satanic. You cannot overturn God's creation order and expect his blessing. God calls you to submit to your husband. This is, people of God, the same word, hupotasso in the Greek, that's used in chapter 2, verse 13, when it talks about citizens or subjects being subject uh, to civil authorities. It's the same word in verse 18 of chapter 2, when it talks about slaves or servants being subject to their masters. But here, we need to be clear, this is not the submission of 
uh, a servant to a master. This is not the submission of a child to a parent or of a subject to a king. Wives are not their husband's slaves. This is rather a different kind of submission. The words of one commentator, it's the submission of a helper, of a companion, of a friend, of a wife to her husband's. And what does submit here mean? What what are the the, the component parts of what pleases the Lord? Of what is your calling? Submission here means don't be the kind of wife that Proverbs warns against. Right? In the book of Proverbs, it's oftentimes said, right, it's better to live in the corner of a rooftop than with a quarrelsome wife. It's better to to have a, a dripping, leaky ceiling than to live with a contrarian wife. Don't be quarrelsome, contentious, contrarian, spiteful. But rather, if you are not to be that, what are you to be? You are to be amenable. You are to be agreeable. You are to be open to his leadership. Even if he is an unbeliever, you are to listen to him and to follow him. Now, Again, important distinctions are needed. Dear sister, if you have an unbelieving husband, it needs to be said, you don't agree on the most important things in life. You don't agree on the lordship of Jesus Christ. You don't agree on the supremacy of the the word of God. You don't agree that in Christ alone you find forgiveness and life and salvation There is no agreement, right, fundamentally between light and darkness. You want to submit all of your life to the kingship and the government of Christ, and he doesn't. There might not even be agreement on how to raise your child. There is not agreement on the most important areas of life, but, but, nevertheless, you can and you should Look for agreement with your husband on a whole host of other seemingly unimportant areas of life. Just because you do not agree and you you cannot see eye to eye on the most fundamental areas of life doesn't mean now that your husband's leadership is, is to be done away with. Right? And these might seem so trivial. These might seem so frivolous. But can I tell you, God calls you to submit In these areas, what to eat, when you have your meals, how to maintain your home, where you'll live, what to budget for, what recreation activities you do together, right? If he wants to watch a movie or, you know, go to a baseball game, right? You can agree with the importance of his work. You can seek to to be kind to his family, right? You can agree with, with him on where to spend Thanksgiving, You're seeking to submit to your husband, which is an all-encompassing category. It has exceptions, but it's an all-encompassing category. In the words of Ephesians chapter 5, wives are called to submit in everything to their husbands. In the Lord, in the Lord, which means that, of course, of course, if there are things that your husband asks you to do that 
God prohibits you from doing, or he says, you don't need to do these things that God says you have to do. Of course, you don't go along with those things which are sinful. But is it not true that in everything else you can submit and you ought to submit to your husband? Dear sisters, it's not just that you put up with your husband, unbeliever as he may be, and you tolerate him in order to fulfill your duty, your obligation as a Christian wife. It's what I referenced earlier. It's that you have to understand what's going on here in your marriage. You need to see your marriage, not with the eyes of flesh, but with the eyes of faith. You need to understand the the dimension, the spiritual depth of what's happening here. Your husband may, may not want to hear God's word from you, but when you live for God, when your life and your conduct are aligned with the word of God, his heart, you see, is being softened to God's truth. You are demonstrating in and through your life what the gospel is. You are showing forth the beauty of God's holiness and you are allowing your husband to see. Maybe he has no one else in his life. Maybe he knows of no other Christian in his life except you, dear sister. You are the one who is showing him what the goodness of God is. And God can and God does use your life to win your husband to himself. And that's the promise here. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. You have a nonverbal witness, dear sister. And isn't it true of, of all of us? A nonverbal witness. Husbands, dear brothers who have unbelieving wives, dear sisters who have unbelieving husbands, you have a nonverbal witness of love, of devotion to your spouse, of marital fidelity, of purity, of good deeds, of respect towards your spouse, of joy and cheerfulness. You cook dinner, dear sisters, with joy. You clean your home with joy. You raise your children with respect and purity. You wash clothes. You dry the clothes. You fold the clothes. You cultivate a moral home without obscenities. You see, this is, this is something that needs to be said. This is the paradox of unbelief. The paradox of unbelief. <clears throat> An unbelieving husband may hate God in fact does that's what God tells us in his word Romans 8 he is hostile to the things of God has no interest in them an unbelieving husband might want nothing to do with God or or the things of God or the word of God and yet here's the paradox he likes and cherishes the blessings that the grace and the kingdom of God afford him and his family He doesn't like God. He rejects God. And yet he wants a wife who is morally pure and respectful. Even as he rejects the reason and the basis for why his Christian wife is different. Which is the grace of God. And here's also the paradox of faith you see. 
that a Christian wife, because she has been transformed by the grace of God, yes, she understands that in the most fundamental areas of life, there is no, dis- there is no agreement. You cannot have fellowship between light and darkness. And yet, a Christian wife, because she has been transformed by the grace of God, is willing, ready, and able to fulfill her duty and to do precisely those things that her unbelieving husband seeks to be done in the home. And she does so with great joy. And she does so not only for the well-being of her home and her husband, but always and ever unto the Lord. Dear sisters, do not see your marriage with the eyes of flesh. You must see your marriage as God sees it, with the eyes of faith. What's the first thing God wills for your life that you would submit to your husband? But the second thing, moving on in our text in verses 3 and 4, is that, dear sister, you would pursue and prioritize true beauty. That you would pursue and prioritize true beauty. What is it of a Christian wife? What about her will attract her unbelieving husband to Christ? What's attractive about a Christian wife? What, what ought to be attractive about Christian women in general cannot be as verse 3 tells us and verse 4 tells us. First and foremost, physical externalities, adornments of the body, of clothing. Verse 3 tells us, don't pursue, don't prioritize this kind of beauty. Verse 4 tells us, rather pursue and prioritize this kind of beauty. Verse 3, look at verse 3 with me, first of all. Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing. This is a verse that's been unfortunately misinterpreted uh, by many, even many in the church, as if Peter is saying, go ahead and neglect completely those concerns, right? Right? Go ahead and have and be not concerned at all with physical externalities, right? With what you wear, how you look like. No, no, Peter's not saying that at all, right? That goes against God's word. It goes against the revelation of uh, God in creation. Rather, what Peter is saying is that your concern cannot remain on this superficial level. The extent of your beauty cannot be skin deep. Your hair, your clothes, your perfumes, how you look, what you're wearing. Dear sisters, your concern must go beyond externalities and what you wear and how you look. And isn't it, isn't it the grace of God that every time he says no to us, he's also saying yes in another way? Right? When God says, don't do this, he gives us verse 4 and says, but rather pursue this, prioritize this. But let your heart but let your, excuse me, adorning, verse 4, be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Your priority, in other words, should be your character. What kind of woman you are becoming. Not the beauty of your physical appearance. That's important, but it takes second place to other more fundamental concerns. It cannot be your primary, first and foremost concern, cannot be your physical appearance, but the beauty of your holiness. 
What should people notice and remember about you? The adorning of the hidden person of the heart. The imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. God speaks to us always where we are tempted to go. Sisters, where you are tempted to focus all your attention. You must not focus primarily on whether your life is conformed to some physical image, right? That we hear a lot of that, and I can't imagine the pressure in our day. Right? We're, we're tempted. You're tempted to focus on some vain ideal of body image, but your life cannot have that focus. It's not that it's unimportant. It's that that is not to be your priority. Your priority, rather, is to be whether you're conforming to the image of Christ. Your priority ought to be, as verse 4 says, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. You may be tempted to not be gentle, to not be uh, quiet, but rather to, to stomp your foot down in life, right? To be loud in your disposition, to be contrarian. Per, per, and perhaps, perhaps you've, th- this is normal to you. You've, you've kind of manipulated your way through life, getting your own way. Perhaps you've, you've cultivated a hard and callous personality. Perhaps you think, well, maybe if I dress this way, in an immodest way, I'll be able to turn heads. But you must not be like this, dear sister. Why? Because you have been made new in Jesus Christ. And that, that work that you seek to do is a work of the flesh. It's the work of the old man. You are not that anymore. You have been made new in Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, you have been given new creation to cultivate a gentle, quiet spirit, the softness of a Christ-like character. This is the repeated testimony of Scripture. In Proverbs 31.30, perhaps you know that penultimate text in the book of Proverbs. Solomon there says, Beauty uh, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, right? He says, you can focus on, on these things all you want, but guess what? When you're 40, 50, 60, 80 years old, those things are going to pass away. Those things will perish, but, but what will become of your life? If charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, what then must you focus on? And he, he finishes the text by saying, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. A woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. First Timothy chapter 2, a New Testament text, tells us the same in verses 9 and 10. First Timothy 2, verses 9 and 10. <clears throat> Here he says, Likewise also, Uh, He instructs that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And Christian women, you see, are to have a concern for those externalities, but they may not be adorned merely with them. 
As if your beauty is simply skin deep and there is no underlying character and godliness. But rather, he says, you are to clothe yourself with respectable apparel, modesty, self-control, and above it all, with good works. Which is your adornment in Christ as new creation. And so I ask you, dear sisters, not just a word for wives, Christian wives who are married to unbelieving husbands or even believing husbands, but a word for all women who profess Christ. What are you paying attention more to in life? You spend more time in front of the mirror, as important as that might be, or do you spend more time in front of the mirror of God's word? Is your primary purpose physical beauty or is it the beauty of godly character, of good works, of a rightly ordered life of honor, respect, and service? What is your priority, dear sister? And sisters who are married to unbelieving husbands, you need to know that this must be your priority because your cheerful, affectionate, thoughtful, faithful life is a witness to your husband of Christ, of Christ. What's God's will but to submit, first of all, and then secondly, to prioritize and pursue true beauty. And then thirdly and finally, verses 5 and 6, to know that as you do good without fear, you join the company of faithful women of the church who have done good without fear. Peter tells us, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands. Submission was their adornment, he's saying. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Peter is saying, God is saying, consider Sarah. Consider Sarah, the faithful matriarch. Sarah was no slouch. She's the faithful matriarch of all godly women who seek to do what is good without fear. And and what did Sarah do? But she submitted and obeyed her husband Abraham and called him Lord. Which was precious in God's sight, which was her adornment. This is an interesting twist, is it not here? That we might think, well, I have to submit to you know, my unbelieving husband as a Christian wife because I want to win him for the Lord, right? But once he gets married, then we're equal, right? I don't need to submit anymore. No, Sarah's husband was Abraham, the great man of God, the great father of the Christian faith, and yet she submitted to him. Submission to your husband when he is an unbeliever, Submission to your husband when he is a believing Christian. What is your calling in all of this? To do good and to not fear. And of course, here we have to say some more words of distinction and qualification. Because as we noted when we considered civil government and the workplace, there are limitations to your submission. God is not calling you to knowingly walk into a situation of abuse. Abuse is heinous in God's sight, beloved people of God. 
God is not calling you to knowingly walk into a situation where you will be harassed and taken advantage of. There are limits to submission. You are to submit in the Lord. When there is a conflict between what civil government, your workplace, your company, your spouse says, and what God says, always and ever, beloved, you must go with God because His Word alone is preeminent. And of course, we need to say as well, that if you are not to put yourself in a situation knowingly uh, where you will be in trouble and suffer, then you can't date and marry an unbeliever. It's just out of the question, beloved. It's just out of the question. We're, we're told repeatedly in 1 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 6, it's dishonoring to God. It breaks His commandment. That's not God's divine design. You're flirting with sin. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how good a son he is, how hard working a, a worker he is. It doesn't matter if he's crushing it in the world. It doesn't matter if he's an alpha male. None of that matters if he doesn't know Christ. You're asking for trouble. You're asking for suffering, dear sister. The same, of course, is true of my dear brothers here. Doesn't matter, doesn't matter how good she looks or whatever else, whatever other externality may be said or may be true of her. If she does not fear the Lord, she's not even an option. But after all is said and done, sisters, you are called to do good and to not fear. And there are many, there are many things in a mixed marriage that can be fearful and frightening. Right? Maybe your husband's unpredictable. Maybe your, your husband all of a sudden springs things upon you that you weren't expecting. Right? You don't know how he's going to react if you say this or that thing. And God says, do not fear. Do not fear. Do not succumb to fear, but trust in Christ. Psalm 56, 4. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. You are not the first, dear sister, to come to Christ to trust the Lord, and yet your husband doesn't trust the Lord. You're not the first, and you won't be the last. You must be resolved to serve God with a clear conscience, to say, Lord, I'm a sinner, but you have saved me, and I come to you now with all that I have, with all that I am, and imperfectly. And yet, Lord, I want to serve you. I want to serve my husband. I want to love him. And I want to live my life in your promise. I want to live my life not fearing, but full of good works and service to you. And you must serve the Lord, and you must serve your children, and you must serve your spouse, and you must serve the church, and you must serve others. This is the life that God has placed before you. The life of doing good and not fearing. Can I say something as we are concluding here? Two things. Two things. <clears throat> if your husband doesn't serve the Lord, and even if your husband serves the Lord, right? But especially if your husband doesn't serve the Lord, your husband is not your enemy. 
Your husband is not your enemy. Satan is your enemy. Satan is your enemy. And if your husband doesn't serve the Lord, you need to understand the spiritual battle you're in. It is a unique battle. Not everyone has to face that. Not everyone is called by God to face that. God has called you to face that. And what you need to understand is that Satan has taken your husband's mind and heart and life captive to do his will. And so your husband needs you. Your husband is not your enemy. Your husband needs you. But your husband doesn't need you to try to change him because you can't. Your husband doesn't need you to try to force on him the Christian religion, right? You, you want him to pray so that your children can see a good example of a good father. So you're going you're to force fit this onto him. Sisters, your husband's an unbeliever. He's unregenerate. He's hostile to the things of God. Your husband does not need you to force him to do things he refuses to do, to go to church, to read the Bible, to be a, a good person. Your husband doesn't need you to argue with him. Round and round you go about the Christian faith, about Christian doctrine, about this or that. Of course, share the gospel with him. Of course, live out the gospel in front of him. But when all is said and done, your husband knows the truth, but suppresses it in unrighteousness. And yet, nevertheless, your husband needs you. Your husband needs you to pray for him. Your husband needs you to plead to God for his soul in the quiet of your prayer closet where there you can pour out your heart, where you can cry out before God and say, God, have mercy upon me, but more so have mercy upon him. Your husband needs you to show him the grace of God in your life. Now, that doesn't just mean to be patient with him and forbearing with him. Yes, of course. Amen to all of that. But what has God's grace done in and for you. How has God transformed your life? Because you are a living epistle, a living letter to your husband of what God is capable of doing. Your husband needs you and he needs you to faithfully walk in the light of Christ. Your husband needs you to respect him. To respect him. This is an important thing that God has built into the hearts of men. To be respected, not to be embarrassed, not to be disrespected. And you, and you might want to, you might, you might say, oh man, I got, I, oh, this is so easy to do. I got so much dirt on him. No. Respect your husband. Be interested in him. Be interested in his well-being. What, what interests him? Your husband needs you. To always welcome him into your life with open arms. Even as Christ welcomes us always with open arms. As the parable of the prodigal son tells us. Your husband is running away from God. If he doesn't believe the Lord. Dear sisters, don't interfere in what God is doing. This is a word for all of us. Not just for women here, but for the men who have unbelieving wives this is a word for us as parents as well right so often we see problem we see a sin in our family right and we we rush in there with some kind of you know righteous anger we want to pound the table you know what happens when you do that you muddy the waters you become the problem 
Right? Your anger, your resentment, what you, all this pent up bitterness. No. God is at work. Don't interfere. Don't interfere with what God is doing in your husband's life. Do not be the problem by muddying the waters with anger and bitterness and resentment and haughtiness and immodest clothing and flirtatiousness and and any other things that we might be tempted to do and engage in. We need to learn to get out of the way. Sisters, get out of the way by showing your husband Christ, the beauty of holiness and the goodness and attraction of Jesus in your life and conduct. That's the first thing. Your husband is not the enemy as you do good. But secondly, remember, remember, dear sisters, and always remember the grace of God. The grace of God in your life. The grace of God that took you from darkness to light. The grace of God that led Jesus to die on the cross for you. The grace of God that now in Jesus Christ gives you the strength to Live for Christ to endure the hardship of this mixed marriage. The grace of God that strengthens you to love your unbelieving husband. And then consider what Peter tells us again here. The grace of God that uses your witness and your imperfect life and your conduct and your life and your respect to your husband and your sacrifice to your husband to save your husband, without a word, without a word, God uses your life to bring your husband to himself. The last verse in chapter two that we looked at, verse 25, tells us what we were. You were straying away from God like sheep and God brought you back to himself and your spouse has strayed away from God. But is God's hand too short to save, to heal, to restore? Never, never. Sisters in Christ, trust God. Take him at his word. Plead for your husband. Love your husband. Live for God and serve your husband in that which is right. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we ask that you would help us, Lord. This is a word not just to our dear sisters in the congregation who have been called to such a calling, such a vocation of suffering, but Lord, it is a word for all of us to take heed how we are living and our conduct. Father, that you would use our respect and life and conduct and purity to draw many to the Savior, but Father, we do pray especially for the wives in our midst. And Father, you would continue to uphold them, continue to empower them and strengthen them to live for you, to do what is right. That Father, they would submit to their husbands and pursue true beauty. And Father, know that they are called to do good without fearing what is frightening because you are with them, because you use their lives for your glory and honor and for the salvation of their husbands. Father, we ask, instill this work and this word in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.